Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hello, Hui. Good evening, Guy. And Sean Walker of Simple Cove. How's it going? Going well, going well. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and if you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Also, make sure you stick around to the end of the show. We're going to be talking about what we've got going on in our own shops. So let's get right into it. Guy, you've got the first question. So the first question I have is from Josh, and Josh actually asked three questions. And I think one has been answered before, but I'm going to talk about it again. So he says, he loves the podcast. I listen to every episode. I'm an amateur like most listeners, but I have about eight years woodworking experience under my belt, which is pretty good. I have two questions. Now he says I have two questions for Guy. No disrespect to Sean and we excellent woodworkers, much better than me. Wow, he must be really bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sure. he's asking two questions. One of them is pretty particular, and I'll, I'll, I'll address that later. But he's got a question. I'm going to take a second question. And he says, guys, I've improved as a woodworker. I'm getting more requests for building custom furniture or recreating a design someone has seen online. This means I need to get serious about cost. You guys have discussed costs of various projects in a previous episode, which was helpful, but still vague enough to leave me scratching my head at times. Uh, I apologize for that. I recognize that you don't want to tell the podcast how much you, how much you might make on a project. I get it. So I'm going to list a project here, not one I'm currently making, hoping to hear your, your think-through material, time, et cetera, as a professional. What would you charge for this project? And what would an amateur charge for this piece? Well, that's two very distinct differences. Mm-hmm. As a professional, what would you charge for this piece? And what should an amateur charge for this piece? So what it is, it's a round breakfast table. It's 42 inches in diameter and a one inch thickness. And he gave a link to a table that Andy Rawls made. Um, if you don't know who Andy Rawls is, he's a, a guy on YouTube, does some pretty good stuff down in Texas. The, the, the base is just simple. It's four legs. They flare out at probably a 10 degree angle. And there are some rounded pieces in the, in the legs. It's not a very complicated thing, but it looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And he says the joinery for the base would utilize the festival domino. He lives in Southeast Texas and rough cherry is around $5 a board foot. So he, he talks about this. And one of the things he said was, you know, how do I figure out my cost? And, and I, I'm a big proponent of not just knowing your cost, but what the market price is for something. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're going to build a dining room table like the, the one you're talking about. If you're portraying yourself and your brand as a professional woodworker, somebody like Andy Rawls, for example, a table like that might go for five, six, seven thousand dollars. Right. Pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Pretty easily. 
an amateur would look at it like, okay, so I used Festool Domino. My cherry is $5 a board foot. I've got, you know, a hundred or $200 in cost in materials. And it took me 30 hours to make it. And I'm going to bill it $30 or $50 an hour. So I've got $600 in cost and labor and $200 from materials. I got $800. I'm just going to double it to 16. Uh, that's something you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. That's leaving money on the table. Pardon the pun. Right. I, I know that's more vagary or ambiguous stuff that I'm discussing here, Josh, but that's really what it is. What you have to do is, you know, I, I, really quick story. I talked to a guy once who made pens and he said, you know, I'd really like to start selling pens for two or $300 a piece. I said, why? And he goes, well, I go to these craft shows and I'm selling my pens for $25, $30. And there's a guy right next to me that's selling pens for $200. And his pens aren't any better than mine. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, so just raise your prices up. Don't be the $25 a pen guy. Mm-hmm. Once you establish yourself as that $25 pen guy, yep. it's very hard to reestablish yourself as the $200 pen guy. So as a professional, Josh, bring your prices up. Your handcrafted stuff is worth a lot more than you think it is, especially if it's good quality. And you've been working eight years as a woodworker. I bet your quality is every bit as good as what any of us three could produce. Right. Don't look so much as your, at your cost. Look at what the market will bear. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this, Sean? You know, as someone that's not done this professionally and someone that would just, as an amateur, only <laughs> primarily make stuff for family and the odd piece for friends, um, I say that what you're saying makes complete sense to me. Um, as an amateur, I would just probably do exactly what you said, figure out the board footage, add 20% extra, figure out the time, figure out the, the hourly rate and, and go by that because I'm not looking to make a whole lot of money as an amateur. I'm looking to have enough money to either buy materials or a tool or something like that. So that's why I don't make a lot of uh, commission pieces because I don't have the time and, and, uh, I'm not in it to make money, but as a professional, you're absolutely right. In my opinion, I've never been a professional woodworker as far as selling pieces, but absolutely right. You know, you got to look at what the market is going for and, and adjust your prices accordingly. Yeah. What, what about, what about you? Hui? Well, I've always looked at it from a profit margin point of view, which is, uh, the cost of the materials, how much time I have invested, and then, you know, increasing it by a 30% or 40% markup, right? So just multiplying that by 1.4, 1.3, whatever it is that you want. That's not true profit margin. What is, what is true profit margin? So let's say it costs you a dollar to make something mm -hmm. and you sold it for $2. Mm -hmm. What would be your profit margin on it? Dollar? Okay. 50%. Mm-hmm. 50% of the, of the sell price mm -hmm. was your cost. Right. 
So taking something and I, I don't have the multiplier sheet in front of me right now, but let's say you made something for a dollar and you wanted a 40% profit margin. It's like a one, six, four multiplier. Mm-hmm. It's not 1.4. <laughs> it's like 1.64. I said, I don't have the sheet in front of me right now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like I said before, I use the example of you pay, you, you cost something a dollar to make and you sold it for two. What's your multiplier? Two. Yeah. What's your profit margin? 50%. Think about it. One point. Okay. So if you're multiplying it by 1.6 or 1.64, whatever it is, then that's a 40% yeah. markup. It's around 40% mar- profit margin. Right. Mar- or, uh, sorry, profit margin. Right. Profit margin. Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. But anyways, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But you have to just, you have to, you can't just take a multiplier off your cost. And that's your profit margin. You have to know what that multiplier is. Mm-hmm. You can you can just Google it, right? You know, profit margin multiplier, and the, the the table will come up, and it'll tell you what those those multipliers are. Right. So, uh, but don't. I, I guess the 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 thing I'm I'm trying to to convey to Josh is don't get caught up in all that. Look at look at like I said, what the market will bear for something. You may get a customer that wants a farmhouse table. Now, that's a different animal. You've got guys on Craigslist selling farmhouse tables that are, you know, nothing but pocket hole joinery. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but pocket hole joinery made out of construction lumber and they paint it white. And they farmhouse table and they're selling them for four or five hundred dollars. A customer might come to you and say, hey, what are you going to charge me? And you're going to tell them, you know, $2,000 based on your cost. Because, you know, I'm I'm not, A, I'm not going to make it out of pocket holes. And and B, I'm not going to make it out of construction lumber, right? The customer doesn't care about that. All they really care about is price at that point. So if you build that, you almost have the market price has been dictated by that jerk on Craigslist. Who's probably an amateur and not a professional, doesn't have all the overhead that you have. Correct. And what he's done is he set the market price for stuff like that. And he's not the only one. He did it first and then 20 other people followed him. Now there's 15, 20 people on Craigslist selling the same piece of crap farm table for four or $500. And you come in at Mm $1,000. Unless you're a really good salesperson, the customer is not going to, they're going to say, well, you know, I'm just going to buy one for $400. So there are times when you have to build things that you have to sell below what you would normally sell it and actually just almost pass dollars through. You know, it cost me $400 to make it and I'm going to sell it for $400. You're not making anything, but you're not losing anything. Don't ever lose money. Yeah, right, that's why right. it's important to build up that Rolodex of of clientele that you can sell these to at your price. Yeah, yeah. You got a network. And it, guys, absolutely, I mean, I'm not a professional, but he's right. I mean, it, you got to determine where you're going to be selling these items. Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, and all of that, you're going to have to bring down the price to compete with some of the other people on there. So that may not be your... Uh, where you want to market your your products and services. Right. Yeah. 
But I mean, I guess what I'm saying if you're going to go on Craigslist, that's fine, or Facebook Marketplace or whatever. Just don't just don't advertise farmhouse tables. I'm just using that as an example because there's a bunch of people out there selling them for next to nothing, made out of construction lumber. Right. Yeah. So don't do it. I, I I know again that's kind of the whole thing is kind of ambiguous, and I wish I could tell Josh, you know, this is the this is the way to do it, but there really isn't. You have yep. to yep you have to just kind of feel your way through it. Yeah, I would I would take a stab if that were me selling it at five aboard foot, I would probably as an amateur looking at that, I would probably sell it for two thousand to twenty five hundred. That's hmm. just my ballpark. I didn't do the board feet calculator. I don't know what the legs, how many board feet that takes up. I don't know if that five dollars a board foot is for eight quarter or four quarter. I would say two to twenty five hundred would be what I would guesstimate at this point. Yeah. But still, that would be way above your cost, right? Correct. And just because it's the piece, it's the level of difficulty, it's cherry, so it's a, a premium wood. And knowing knowing you, Sean, it's going to be a very nice table. So, yeah. Potentially. Worth it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And plus, he's using the domino. That's going to save a lot of time. No through mortars yep. and tenons. And, yeah, I would feel comfortable quoting someone twenty two fifty if I knew the board footage. Yeah. That's mm. just a guess, but that's probably what I would do. All right. So who's got the next question? I do. Sean. Nice. Yep. All right. This is from Nick. Hey guys, fairly new to finer woodworking and have a pretty big project coming up. And I have a question. What method do you guys use for waterfall joints besides dominoes and are biscuits and glue strong enough? Uh, I'm going to give one recommendation and I'm going to pass the mic off to Hui uh, just to get his opinion on it. But I would recommend using splines uh, installed in two matching grooves routed in the miters. And, you know, I'm going to preface this conversation by saying, I don't know what Nick is going to build, how big it is. If it's right. a coffee table, a kitchen table, I, I'm not sure. So I'm just, I'm just going to speak like I'm not sure what he's building, but, um, you know, depending on the size of the board that you're routing, you can either, uh, run them through the router table using some jig to support the piece, or you could build a jig to, angle the router handheld router and route the slots that way and uh you know for the splines themselves you could do one long spline or you could do multiple smaller splines uh, mm-hmm. and you can make the splines either out of plywood or hardwood but if you do choose hardwood make sure that you align the grain perpendicular to the surface of the miter slot mm-hmm. uh, before i pass this off to hui to see what his uh, recommended method would be as far as using biscuits i would say again it honestly depends on the piece that you're building if you're building a small piece, um, just I don't know what waterfall pieces would be small, but if you are, maybe biscuits uh, would be um, perfectly fine. But if you're using something, or if you're making something like a coffee table, something a little bit larger, I personally can't speak for Guy and Hui. I would not use biscuits. Um, I would just make splines or use splines, uh, and that's you know also I wouldn't use biscuits because I don't own a biscuit joiner. So that's my <laughs> opinion on the matter. And uh, I'm going to pass it off to Hui and see, A, what is your method, preferred method outside of dominoes and splines, if there are any, and would you use biscuits? I've seen a couple of folks use some big dovetails for waterfalls. Uh, I might do something like that. Uh, what you mentioned about the spline, I probably would like one big routed spline just using you know some, some scrap stock. Uh, I probably wouldn't use a biscuit, although... 
I wonder if you doubled them up or tripled them up, if they would be strong enough. Uh, it might be depending on Two rows what, of it. Yeah. Depending on what size of table or waterfall you're doing. Uh, I don't think it would be a bad thing. Um, I would just worry about getting enough, a deep enough joint, right. To really grab the material. Again, I would probably use some type of uh, spline. Like you said, Sean, uh, routing out a nice, big, long, loose tenon, so to speak, possibly even using dovetails on the end. But I probably wouldn't use biscuits. I don't think I'd be confident enough in, in the strength, but maybe, maybe it would be strong enough. I don't know. I hadn't tested it. Yep. Guy, what do you, you got anything to add to this? I guess I'm going to answer Nick's question with the question, and Nick's probably going, ugh. <laughs> so it really depends, Nick. The waterfall edge is a plywood. Is this like an inch and a half or two inch thick slab? Yeah. I don't. I don't know if it's solid wood or plywood because it's two different things. So let me give you an example. I just. I mean, this is kind of appropriate because I just built yesterday a piece that's three sided. The sides are thirty inches deep. The back is 35 inches wide and it's 54 inches tall and it's mitered at the corners. It's two pieces of plywood that I had to laminate together to be an inch and a half thick. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So yep. I got inch and a half, I got inch and a half plywood, relatively speaking, inch and a half plywood mitered 54 inches long. And I got two 30-inch side, sides and a 35-inch back. It's all biscuited together. And it's stronger than crap. Mm-hmm. Now, what is it? Is it a case? What is it? It doesn't matter what it is. It's Why for something it? weird. It's, it's for something weird for some office somewhere is, is all you need to know. They're putting something in it, and then there's something else going on top of this, and they just want it surrounded. So, so it's um, not like a coffee table where it could be abused and set on and all that stuff. No, but it's part of a desk. So people will be sitting at it and doing things. Okay. Well, that's why I was needing clarification. There's something attached to it. But I'll tell you, you know, when we pick this thing up, it's, it's because of its size, it's very heavy. There's no concern at all about that miter coming apart at all, period. The biscuits are, they're doubled up. So there's two rows of biscuits and they're every six inches. So there's what, like eight biscuits, eight sets of biscuits going all the way up. There's a bunch of them, but it's also plywood. So I've got long grain to long grain for 50% of the joint, right? Mm-hmm. That's the kicker. And it's an inch and a half thick. So I'm getting a lot of good long grain to long grain glue joint along with the biscuits. So it's very strong. Now let's turn the tables on that. Like, cause this goes back to, you know, Nick, I don't know what you're making. Let's say you're taking a slab and this is very common where you take a slab, you cut a 45 at one end and then you put a, a brace on the other end, you make a coffee table out of it. Right. And it's a waterfall. Everybody has seen those. Yep. Those are typically slabs that are at least, you know, an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half thick. So you're cutting that at a 45 degree angle. That's mostly end grain. 
I don't think I would be confident even using double biscuits, double rows of biscuits into something like that where I don't have a good solid purchase because of the end grain. Now, I another way to do it is to do what I just said. If you have biscuits, but use epoxy. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be more than strong enough for a coffee table. More than strong enough. People give biscuits a bad rap of not being strong. And they say, you know, it'll only hold 400 pounds while a domino will hold 600 and a mortise and tenon will hold 1,000. Well, you're not going to put, you're not even going to put 400 pounds of pressure on it. So who cares? Right, right. Don't get caught up in all that. Biscuits, you know, I've, I remember when I first got a biscuit joiner, it was a DeWalt biscuit joiner. It was, I mean, it was early 90s. It was like 91, maybe 92, maybe before that. I made all kinds of stuff with a biscuit joiner. I made, you know, dining room tables where the legs are attached to aprons with biscuits on a dining room table at, you know, six foot long, 42 inches wide. Never had any problems. More than strong enough. Mm -hmm. They're a lot stronger than people give them credit for. But today I would use a domino and he says he doesn't have a domino. But today I would use a domino because it's, it, it is much stronger. It's almost a mimicking of a, of a mortise and tenon joint. Right. So, but if he doesn't want to do that, biscuits are a good option. And if it's going to be something with end grain, I think you have to decide what kind of glue you're going to use. I'd use epoxy. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing to, to mention about why you were talking about glorious biscuits is if you're doing <laughs> splines, if you think about it on a mitered edge, the spline isn't going to be that much deeper than what a, a large biscuit would cut. So, Correct. I mean, I can see that. I dig that. I still don't own a biscuit joiner, but I dig that. In the last year, I've been using biscuits a lot, a lot more than I have in the past. And I'll tell you what, I'm falling in love with them all over again. Yeah, you're using the lamello, right? Yes. Ah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a different animal. Today, I use a DeWalt, as a matter of fact. At work, man? Yep. I'll be honest with you. A biscuit joiner is one of those tools that I've, I've always wanted to buy, kind of like a belt sander that I just never have. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I know I'm going to probably take some crap for it because Lamello sponsors me and gives me lots of cool stuff. Oh, my gosh. But do yourself a favor. If you're going to buy one, Sean, buy the Classic 10. It's it's a six hundred dollar biscuit joiner. However, it's a real tool. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, it's I mean, a I know you're, tool and it works like it's supposed to work. I used the the new Dewalt today. It was mm-hmm. brand new. We just bought these like two weeks ago because our old ones got you know dropped so many times and got and they they were they weren't working very well anymore. So we bought two brand new ones, and I'll tell you what, it's almost like a toy compared to the Lamello. It's like the difference between driving a BMW and a Yugo. There's that much difference. It's a good tool. It's machined well. It's like, it's like a, it's like a Festool. You know, it's just made really well Mm -hmm. and it's really super accurate. And yes, I'm recommending buying a Lamello, even though it's six, $700. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you know me that well. Yeah, I do know you that well. (laughs) 
But uh, bottom line is, Nick, I do think biscuits are strong enough. If you're going to use it on a, a solid wood table, use epoxy. If it's a plywood edge or, you know, like plywood and veneer, just use regular wood glue. You'll be fine. Yeah. And this kind of goes to anybody listening. If you do submit us questions, please give us more information than you think we'll need. Right. Yeah, but not too much information. <laughs> well, we can cut some of that stuff out if we need to. All right. Uh, Hui, what do you have for us? All right. So Dale from Muskego, Muskego? I think that's right. Muskego, Muskego Wisconsin asks, Hey guys, I am making a Morris chair out of cherry. Being a novice woodworker, this is my first substantial project. I'm having problems with snipe with my Delta 22555 13-inch planer. And the Delta 22555 is like a lunchbox planer where the head moves up and down, similar to not the DeWalt 4 post, but the other DeWalt, um, yeah. uh, DeWalt planer. Uh, I keep adjusting the in-feed and out-feed tables, but still getting the darn snipe. Any suggestions? Also... How much thicker should pieces of wood be to obtain a desired thickness? That second question is a little confusing to me, but we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. So I think with these, particularly the smaller thickness planers, I think the snipe is not necessarily coming from the fact that your in-feed and out-feed tables, which, I mean, again, it could still be a symptom of that, but I don't think if you're, you keep adjusting your in-feed and out-feed tables and just can't, can't get it right, I think it has to do with your feed rollers and sort of the the mechanism by which the feed rollers are pushing the material through. So as a board is exiting the planer, the, the in-feed roller runs off the end of the board and the, that roller is applying a good bit of pressure to the board. And now suddenly as it gets off of the end of the board, there's simply no more pressure. So there's now no more upward pressure against that roller which my guess is that probably the head of the of the planer itself is maybe moving down a little bit and causing that slight bit of snipe on the end. Uh, one of the ways that you can help alleviate that is actually having a short, like maybe six, seven, eight inch board that is essentially the same thickness as the material that you're running through the thickness planer to uh, apply that on the entrance of the board that you're thicknessing and also on the exit of the board that you're thicknessing. And that could help by now continuing that pressure on the infeed roller so that you're now not allowing that board to kind of uh, jump up into. So you're saying like a, like a scrap board as a follower. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Or have yeah. your original board be longer by about four inches. You know, that's what I've done in the past. And, but honestly, I've, you know, I, I allow all my boards to be a little bit, longer than they need to be anyway. So it's never been really a problem for me. But again, I've never really had a planer that had a lot of snipe um, or any, for that matter, any snipe whatsoever. Uh, I've not dealt with a snipe issue. So, uh, you know. Have you ever are, had a, one of these lunchbox planers? I've not. No, I have had a lunchbox planer, but I've not. I guess I just wasn't good enough at woodworking to really care all that much about the snipe on the end. Um, Can you even adjust the rollers on those lunchbox planers, the cheaper ones? I don't think yeah. so. I don't think so. Yeah. The, all you can really do is adjust the in-feed and out-feed bed, out beds. Yeah. 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 That's what I would suggest that you do. Uh, any other suggestions from you guys in terms of what it could be or how he could uh, possibly alleviate that? I think we've addressed something similar to this before. 
Well, I like Sean's idea, and that's what I used to do when I sometimes I get snipe on boards using the lunchbox planer. One of the things that I noticed when using lunchbox, if I was if I was planing, let's say like a six foot board, mm-hmm. I would get snipe. Which even with my in feed and out feed beds turned up slightly higher than level on the out the furthest point. Yep. Yep. To try to keep the, 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 the board engaged with the rollers. Mm-hmm. Because the board was longer and heavier at the end, I'd get the snipe. Yep. You know, run a 12, 13 inch board, no problem. Yeah. Longer boards, I get snipe. Yeah. So there's two there's two ways I got around that. So let's say I've got, you know, I'm putting some like eight foot boards through mm-hmm. a lunchbox planer. I had a lunchbox planer for years, you know, probably easy 20 years. That's all I used. All I did was as the board is coming out, I put my hand underneath it and lifted it very slightly, you know, like maybe a quarter of an inch Mm -hmm. or less as the board comes out. And that would alleviate snipe a little bit. Another thing that I did, which Sean mentioned before, if let's say, let's say I need a finished board of 60 inches, my board's going to be 70 because I'm going to cut the snipe off the end. Right, yeah, yeah. I know the snipe is going to be there. I just planned for it, and I got a little waste. So what? Yeah, yeah. In in the scheme of things, it doesn't add up to that much. Some people get perfect lunchbox planers, and some people fight with them the entire life of the planer and still cannot Mm -hmm. get rid of the snipe. I mean, mean, if you've done everything you can, you either got to get another machine or – you know, account for that with extra length on the board and, or roller stands, if that'll help if the, if it's a long board, but Mm -hmm. you know, ultimately you don't have a lot that you can change or, or configure or move around or whatever on those lunchbox planers other than the in-feed and out-feed tables. For the higher end or the bigger planers, Sean, what you were saying is typically you're able to actually adjust the pressure on the in-feed and out-feed rollers. And that's actually what I've done. What I did with my Grizzly planer is I actually adjusted it because I was getting a little bit of snipe, and I just adjusted it to reduce the amount of pressure on the infeed side, particularly, and it and it alleviated the problem. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, at work, you know, today I probably put, you know, I probably milled uh, maybe four or five hundred board feet of lumber. Some of these boards I was working with were 14 feet long. Mm-hmm. There's snipe on them. So I was building a tabletop that was 133 inches long. My boards were 146. Yeah. I, and I know I'm going to cut stuff off the end of them. Right. right. Just because the board's so long and heavy, I know I'm going to get snipe. Yeah. And that's actually a, a, a procedure in our shop that we add eight inches of length to every board we need. Wow. Four on the in and four on the out. And you guys are building some big tables too. So it makes sense. No, just anything we build. Yeah. That's just our shop policy. You add four inches to the leading and trailing edge of a board. Mm -hmm. Every board is eight foot, eight inches longer than you need it to be. And it makes good sense. Yep. It cuts down on all the BS. I'd rather cut off four inches on either end than having to remake a part because you have snipe or whatever and you just didn't make it long enough in the first place. So eh, I get it. Now the other, the second half of his question here is a little bit confusing. I think what he means is he asks here, 
also how much thicker should pieces of wood be to obtain a desired thickness? I think like, what how he, long is the rope? Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm just. I'm a little confused by that. My guess is that what he means is, you know, let's say you're you've got uh, you want the final dimension to be an inch thick. You know, you start with five quarter material. Is I mean, is is does yeah, that make that's sense? Probably meaning. Yeah. 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 I always, I always, I, at, at the very least try to aim for about a quarter of an inch extra thickness to, to flatten and, and plane. And sometimes you need more than that, depending on how the board is that you're working. You have, does it have a twist? Does it have a cup? You know, is it really warped? You know, that sort of thing. You know, the, the more defect that you have in the overall flatness of the board, the more material you're going to have to remove. Right. So I, I usually typically, you know, if I'm, I'm going for an inch thick, I'm, I'm looking at five quarter material, sometimes even six quarter, depending on the imperfections of the, of the board during, through the drying process. Does that make sense? I think that's what he's asking. Yeah, it does. And I think it depends if you're resawing for a book match panel versus just milling up lumber for a tabletop. I mean, I would choose, I would probably, you know, go a, a different route. Just if I'm resawing for something like a book matched piece, I'm probably going to go a little bit thicker than, than I would if I were to just mill up a piece, uh, five quarter to get one inch thick. It, that's just my opinion. Like, in yeah. other words, if I needed something that's half inch thick pieces and I was going to get, you know, three of them, I'd probably start with eight quarter instead of starting out with like, um, five quarter and trying to get two half inch pieces just because right. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to take that chance of the pieces cupping or bowing or having internal stresses. Um, mm-hmm. that's, I would look at it differently depending on what I was doing. Yeah, no, it makes sense, uh, Sean. And I, I've done that as well. Like if I'm, if I'm going to resaw, I'm, I'm definitely adding a lot more than a quarter inch. Um, it just because I know that, you know, resawing is going to release a lot of that internal t- uh, tension and, and, and I'm going to have to re flatten everything, even though I flattened it once before I resaw. Um, how, how about you guy? Are, are you, are you, is this is this making sense? Are you kind of on the same? Yeah, I, I agree with I agree with everything you guys say. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I can't, I, think, I can't really add anything to that. Okay. Okay. Well, I think uh, you know. With that, we'll shoot the next question right back to you, man. To me. Yep. I'm, I'm up again already. Damn. <laughs> We're 40 minutes in, man. <clears throat> All right. So this question is from Adam, and Adam says, "Hi guys, been listening since the beginning and love the show, but I'm still a beginner." and recently purchased a bandsaw. Uh, it's a Rikon 10-326 with a brand new three-quarter inch Timberwolf resaw blade, which I'm trying to use for resawing, obviously. A friend gave me a bunch of Purple Heart to resaw for him, and, well, it didn't go well. So my questions. He's actually got three questions here. And the, the, the let me just go through them real quick. Number one. Do you prefer to resaw using a point fence or just the bandsaw's normal fence? He says the normal fence gave me a lot of drift with the purple art. What he's talking about there is there's you can either use a flat fence mm-hmm. with the blade, you know, just like a table saw, or you can put like a bar in front of it that gives you a pivot point right by the blade. So you draw a line down the board and you can kind of sight down it and move the blade around, move the piece of wood around. Mm-hmm. Um 
Number two is it better to keep the piece you're resawing off next to the side, next to the fence or the side of the blade without the fence. In other words, to the inside or the outside of the blade. Mm -hmm. The former seems preferable for repeatable cuts, but it seems you quickly use, lose a reference, reference surface on the third cut. Number three, is it possible that I had so much trouble because I was resawing a hardwood like purple heart and dulled my blade really quickly? Or is resawing a lot more fussy than you all make it look on YouTube? <laughs> Thank you. And for what it's worth, he's followed the Snodgrass advice on setting up the guides. And I'm pretty sure I got that right. Adam, so question number one. Was do you prefer to resaw using a point fence or just the bandsaw as normal fence? I use the bandsaw's normal fence. I tried using a pivot or a point fence once and I didn't like it. What about you guys? Same. Bandsaw's fence. Yep. Yep. Okay. Normal fence. So we're all in agreement using the flat part of the fence versus a pivot point. If mm -hmm. your saw is set up correctly, I don't understand the point of the point fence. No, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think it has to do with drift. Yeah, I think so too. Number two, is it better to keep the piece you're resawing between the, the, the fence and the blade or on the cutoff side? What do you guys do? I you set your blade, blade like, you know, let's say you're, yep. let's say you're resawing a piece of wood you know, down the middle and you set your fence to, you know, it's, it's, it's one inch thick and you want to cut it in half to half inch, or let's say you want to cut veneers mm -hmm. at an eighth inch thick. Mm -hmm. Do you set yeah. your, do you set your fence to an eighth inch behind the blade and yes. do that? Or do you like keep moving your fence over and use the cutoff side? The keeper is between the blade and the fence. You're going to have more consistent pieces, I think, instead of moving yep. the fence every time. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yep. He's also asking, is it possible I had so much trouble because I was resawing a hard wood-like purple heart and dulled my blade really quickly? Or is resawing a lot more fussy than you all make it look on YouTube? Yes, I would think. I've I've used purple heart once. I never. I did not resaw it. So I can't say how well it resaws, but it is a fairly hard wood. It's a dense wood. And your bandsaw has to be, I would think, in really tip-top perfect shape or it's the, the, the blade's going to belly on you. Yeah. And, and, you know, the second part of the question is resawing a lot more fussy than you all make it look on YouTube. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I'm, you know, I've got a really nice bandsaw. Mm -hmm. I use a uh, carbide tip blade when I resaw my veneers. And I tell you what, man, you know, just when you think you've got it all set, catastrophe strikes. Yeah. And, you know, your blade bellow, your, your blade bellies or something weird happens. One of the guides vibrates and, and doesn't work right anymore. You know, I, I'm constantly tightening and retightening everything when I'm doing a, a, a veneer cut. Um, it's a fussy experience mm -hmm. and you have to have a good bandsaw to do it. it. Sounds like you got a good bandsaw, Adam, and you got a decent blade. Those, those Timberwolf blades, I've, I've never owned one, but I've heard good things about them. So mm -hmm. it's just one of those things. It's, 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 it, it takes practice to learn how to resaw correctly. 
and purple heart is hardwood by the way so you probably should have started off with something a little bit softer because you don't know the feed rate if you've not resawn before and mm-hmm. yeah. and that's hardwood so i mean pushing it too fast could cause drift and you really didn't say what your issue was i was reading the question again i'm not seeing were you having problems or is it just you realize yeah. it's a lot more work than we make it look on youtube <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm curious. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I'm curious as to what problem he had. I mean, we can assume maybe drift. We can assume maybe wavier of a cut than he might have expected. You know, I'm just sort of curious. I I assume that he's going to have some difficulty cutting Purple Heart. I mean, it's just I think that's a very safe assumption to make. But I'm just not exactly sure what it is that he had issues with. I'll give you guys phone number. So DM me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as, as, as far as like resawing really hard wood, you do have to really slow down your feed rate quite a bit. Yeah. And he's also talking about the Snodgrass method. Um, myself, I do not use the Snodgrass method. I follow some parts of it, but the Snodgrass method is pretty much the standard method that everybody uses. Mm-hmm. So. I think he just kind of made it famous because he did a really cool video on it. And I'm not taking anything away from him. Please don't take it that way. But I tension my blade a hell of a lot tighter than what he says to do also. I don't know about how you guys feel about that. Uh, in comparison to how much tighter or or, or um, looser than my blade is to, to Alex Snodgrass, I tension my blade to the point where I feel like I'm getting just the slightest amount of deflection with uh, by pressing on the blade. Uh, you know, oh, I guess that is the Snodgrass method, isn't it? If, yes. Yeah. Well, I guess I do use this method. <laughs> I, 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 put, I put my blade pretty tight. Yeah. Yeah. Really yep. tight. I've broken blades before because I've got so much pressure on them. Did you have something you want to add real quick, Sean, before we move on to the next question? Nope. That's what I was going to mention. <laughs> Because we've been talking about resawing for quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we're going to move on. Well, who's got the next question? I do. John. Yeah. Okay. All right. I picked up four slabs of white oak that measure about 10 foot long by 15 inches wide and are two and a quarter inches thick. I set up a router sled, leveled everything on saw horses, And as it turns out, a couple of the slabs have a twist of about one inch or a bow of about one inch at their end. I wanted to keep the slabs as thick as possible. And I don't think a one inch top would look right. I ripped down one to about 12 inches to try to reduce the twist and ride off a small amount, but it still has a fair amount of twist and will require a lot of material to be removed. How would you handle these slabs? Flatten one side with a router sled and leave the bottom slightly out to keep the thickness, rip them down to smaller widths so that I can handle my six inch joiner in hopes to keep the thickness at about one and a half inches, screw it and leave the twist and bow smooth out so that I can use a power planer and go with it. I don't have access to a larger shop with the belt sander. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to start by saying, I guess that you're using this table as a tabletop since you hint by saying, I don't think the one inch top would look right. So with that in mind, again, we're not sure exactly what you're building. I would absolutely not want to flatten the top, but leave the bottom warped. Uh, Let me preface this by saying, again, I don't know what Mm -hmm. you're building or what the base type is or the construction. Mm -hmm. If it's in like a regular uh, table base with drawers and legs and stuff, or if it's one of those metal bases, uh, you're using a slab for the top. Um, because, you know, if you just leave the bottom slightly warped, you're going to run the potential of pulling your base out of square and causing it to not sit flat. But again, I don't know the type of construction. If I were in your shoes, I would rip the boards down just wide enough to remove the warp and then build a router sled or a planer sled rather to flatten the boards. 
Uh, that's going to be a whole lot easier than trying to flatten 10 foot long boards on your joiner and then mm-hmm. running them through the planer. So I would, mm-hmm. I would probably cut them down to 10 inches wide to see how they look and then use the uh, planer sled for that and bypass the joiner. Because uh, you've, you've only got, how many boards did you say? Four slabs. So mm-hmm. you're going to have about, I don't know, five or no, you're going to have eight pieces to run through there. Um, that would be my recommendation is to bypass the joiner because 10 foot long, six inch joiner. Yep. I think you're going to have issues of, of remaining, keeping those boards flat. So I would build a planer sled, run those through there and, uh, and then glue them back together and get the flat on the top and the bottom instead of trying to leave the bottom a little out. That's my recommendation. Guy, what would you do? I am not the right person to ask because if it were me, I don't, I see slabs as just pieces of wood waiting to become completely flat for a side square lumber that I can make things out of. Mm -hmm. So something like this, you know, I look at it just like it's a, let's say I had a regular board that was, you know, 10 inches wide, 10 feet long and had a really bad twist to it. And it was two and a quarter inches thick. Mm -hmm. You're only going to be able to get that board so thick. Yep. You have to you have to look at it and say, well, I'm going to take this much out of that this side. I'm going to take this much out of this side. Then all said and done, it's going to leave me three quarters of an inch because it's so twisted so bad. Right. That's life, man. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's why working with want, slabs you, is if, so difficult, though, right? Yeah, if you if you want to keep that slab look, I mean, I don't know what the answer is because to me, I would just if I wanted it flat, I would just flatten it. And when you flatten it, you're going to lose a lot of material, mm-hmm. especially yeah. if it's got twist to it. Yeah. You're going to lose grain continuation or you're going to lose thickness. One or the other. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. So that's all I can really say about it. I mean, I think maybe the only thing I could add is maybe try, you know, you could build a router sled. Uh, is, is that what you said, Sean? Or did you say a planer sled? Planer sled. I accidentally said both throughout my entire <laughs> response, oh. but I meant planer sled. Planer sled. Maybe a router sled. You know, that's about maybe all I can add. But but just like Guy said, you know, when you deal with these longer, wider slabs, you come into issues like Guy said. You're going to have... A, Even a, longer, a, wider boards. It doesn't have to be a slab. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The, these are, you know, and then that's why... Just like we answered in the earlier question, you need a thicker board. You know, it depends on what kind of defect is in the board. You're going to have to have it thicker to get the final thickness that you want. Yep. And be very picky when you pick your boards. If you have the choice to to look at it, get the flatter board. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you just find something that's really beautiful and you have no choice but to buy it and work with what you have. But I would make sure to get both sides flat, again, depending on the base that you're using. If it's something where you don't, you know, you're not going to touch the last X amount of inches where it's warped the most maybe you could get away with it but Mm -hmm. i wouldn't yeah yeah you also come into the fact that like if you flatten the top and then you don't remove the same amount of material on the bottom you get some issues there too yeah i hope that helps jesse um we off to you (laughs) All right. Well, I, I hope it helps because I don't think we, we gave him much help. <laughs> I, I think, well, yeah, we did. At least I did. Can't speak for you. Hating on okay. slabs. I, I apologize for not giving any help, <laughs> So this is a question from, this is a second part of Dale's question. Uh, 
And he, again, is building a Morris chair. And this, the Morris chair that he's building actually has a gentle bent lamination. The arms of the chair has a, is a bent lamination. He built a bending form, and he's wondering if we can go through the process from resawing, what thickness particularly, to assembly, to clamping, what glue to use, etc. And final thickness of the chair, chair arms is an inch and an eighth thick. So I uh, have done only a little bit of bent lamination. I think I've, I've done bent lamination twice. And each time that I've done bent lamination, I've, I've resawn to uh, a little over an eighth of an inch and then uh, went to the drum sander to take it down to a final thickness of an eighth of an inch. Is that uh, generally about kind of what you guys are aiming for? Yep. Guy? Sure. Sure. <laughs> it, it sounds good to me. If it's your homemade veneer shops on eighth, yes. Yeah. Um, so so I'll, I'll, I'll add maybe another thing that I like to do with the form is I actually like to, my guess is that he's not doing vacuum bagging or vacuum uh, bent lamination in a vacuum bag. Uh, I like to add little tabs on the uh, face or the edge, excuse me, of the of the form. And then that way I can push all of my laminations towards that tab and get them relatively aligned so they're not sliding all over the place. Um, any tips for Dale in terms of how to keep things aligned during glue up? I think exactly what you said. Yeah, little tabs. Back is what I did too. Yeah. Um, clamping calls. Uh, packing tape on clamping calls. Is that, that, that's what I like to do and, and anything different there. I use, I like to use wax wax on the calls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I usually put a call. If I'm doing a bent lamination, I'll put a call on the inside and especially on the outside. Mm-hmm. That's typically a hardboard. Yeah. Or yeah. Masonite. Some people call it. I don't mm-hmm. know what the difference is. I know there's a difference. I don't know what it is. And I don't really care. So, <laughs> but I use, I use that stuff. It's like three sixteenths of an inch thick. And the reason is, is because when you're bending wood like that, mm-hmm. you're stretching the outside fibers, but you're crushing the inside fibers. Right. Right. Yeah. Good point. It's the way you have to look at it. And if you don't use a call on the inside and the outside of that, it can it can lead to cracking mm-hmm. and breaking. Just a, a quick aside. But I don't use those little tabs you're talking about. As I'm clamping the thing up, I usually have a block of wood and I'm just pounding the pieces down mm-hmm. flat to the surface. Ah, ah, good point. Good point. Um, so that's, that's what I do. The last bent lamination I did was a pr- was a pretty big one. It was um, a semicircle. I had built uh, a set of legs that had two semicircles that intersected with one another. I don't know if you guys remember that, that yep. table I built. Um, conference table, right? Yeah, it's a conference table. And that was a 48-inch half a circle. Yeah. So it was pretty big. You have the inside and outside form where the radius is one on the inside and it's different on the other one because of the thickness of the, the thing. And I put them down on, a, on, a, on my workbench and I got three of those uh, quick clamps Yep, that were like 50 inches long. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, squish, 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 squish them together. And I, just, and I, I squished them together and right. it worked fantastically well. Mm-hmm. 
Did you just three clamps? Yeah, it was it was wonderful. Did you secure it up with any pipe clamps at all, or just the three? Nope. Cl- quick I just really? thought I just put the the they were have they were the heavy duty ones. They were they, these things hold like six hundred pounds of pressure. Yeah, nice. I was really surprised at how well it worked. Yeah, I had never I had never done it that way before, but it worked really well for this. Now I've used yeah. I've used two types of glue for bent lamination. <laughs> For the gentle curve that he's talking about, um, for gentle curves, I've used I have used a PVA type glue with a little bit more solids in it, which helps prevent creep. Um, but uh, but I've also used the urea resin glue for bent lamination uh, as well. And, and any other suggestions in terms of glue, or are those kind of like the two in terms of what you would use for a bent lamination? Yep, for me, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, for bent lamination, I'm pretty much only using urea resin glue now. Yeah, because it's it's super super hard. Yeah. Yeah, there's no there's no spring back. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> so for I think most- that I think that answers all of his questions. Any other tips that we might not want to add for him or? Yeah, there. The Wood Whisperer has a really oh, good video on YouTube about bent no, lamination. Tell him to go to my channel. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> done. I wasn't better. done videos and he does i wasn't done he's a hack you gotta <laughs> let me finish so wood whisper is the only video on youtube i'd recommend <laughs> guy has a, a youtube i was gonna i was gonna recommend you but you didn't let me finish I'm just teasing. I'm just guys woodshop may have a three or five good vent animation videos he's done it quite a bit i'll tell you what i'll even put links in the show notes on our Ooh. website how about that? And I was kidding about Mark, the Wood Whisperer. Mark is uh, is a hell of a talent, and he's a good dude. And if he's listening, I'm just messing with you, Mark. <laughs> but yeah, that's all that I can add to that is Guy Dunlap and Mark Spagnolo both have great videos that I will link to in our show notes. Haven't you done some of that stuff too on YouTube, Sean? I have indeed. I forgot all about that. I didn't want to. So yes. So go to all of our YouTube channels and <laughs> go to YouTube and search for bent lamination, all that stuff. So there you go. All right. Well, I think that does it for questions. Let's uh, let's talk about what we got going on in the shop. I'll go to Guy first. What do you got going on in the shop, man? Uh, in my home shop, absolutely nothing. At work, all kinds of stuff. But I don't want to talk about that. Last episode, I talked about how some jerk hacked my Instagram account and I lost it and I had to go get a new account. There was like an organic growth of, of that account, the new, the guys would shop too. And, and thanks everybody for doing that. Last week I managed to get my account back and I don't want to go into how it happened. Cause I don't really know how I got it back. Instagram, the only, the only, information i ever received from instagram is sorry it was deleted it's unrecoverable like okay so but i guess it was recoverable because i've got it back now so that's all i've really got going on what about you sean (laughs) waiting on supplies to be delivered because amazon prime as we know is two days and with all the stuff going on they're having issues so i'm just waiting on parts that i can drum sand the uh, parts of the bread box that I'm making. Um, I actually found some really nice bird's eye maple 
at my local Woodcraft nice. for five ninety nine a board foot, which I think is pretty darn good. Wow. And I'm using that yeah, for the yeah. for, uh, for the two. I don't know what you call it doors that are on the bread box. So I'm waiting on some drum sanding paper to smooth those out. And I'm going to be firing up the CNC and doing some stuff on there this coming weekend. Is it, is it a timbre door? No, it's just a solid chunk that ah. you lift up on hinges. Yeah. It's no timbre door. Oh, that was, um, speaking of the wood whisperer, that was one of his guild projects, yep. wasn't it? Same one I mentioned last, last it's show that, that I'm still working on. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's a nice spread box. Yep. Cool. That's all that I have going on. What about you, Hui? Well, I haven't been doing much, or at least it doesn't look like I've been doing much. I've been learning a lot about CNCs since I've got my uh, CNC machine in, um, learning a lot about software, G-code, <clears throat> zeroing. Um, I got the LED lights that are on my CNC machine working. Uh, we had a little bit of an issue uh, when it... That's more important than anything else, the flashing LED <laughs> well, lights. Actually, it's, it's, they're, they're playing... They're plain. They they're plain lights. It's just uh, there was a the power supply. Something happened in shipping when uh, when it got to me, and for some reason the twelve volt power supply on the LEDs, um, I guess, just burnt out. I don't know how that happened particularly, but uh, learning learning software, learning cam, just really soaking it in. It's been a lot of fun to learn, but it's time to actually start making some wood chips with it, and um, uh, got the dust collection running on it really simple boot that uh dust boot that the um that carl bruce had designed for me that made for me um so yeah just been doing that having a lot of fun with it so that's about it awesome i think that wraps up this show please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community and we really need your questions we're running low uh we've been so happy with the response that we've been getting. So, you know, we're putting out another call that we need more questions and make sure when you do send in your questions, one that you uh, give us your name because we want to know who you are. Sometimes uh, we don't actually get a name with the question and two, give us a lot of context about what it is that you're doing in your shop so that we can really dig deep and try to answer the questions that you send us uh, the best that we can. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, guyswoodshop.com. And on Guys Wood Shop on Instagram. Back again. Sean, Back how about again. you? Simplecove.com at Simplecove on the social platforms. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks for listening. And uh, guys, we'll see you in a couple weeks. See you. All right. See you.